What that communicated to me is that educators uh, who care for multilingual learners are there and they are willing to do their part to protect the potential of these students. So what we really need is for systems to care, for those mm -hmm. school districts, for uh, those state education agencies to ensure that they are making those opportunities for professional development available to their educators. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, English language learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. If you've been listening to our last few episodes, you've heard that I have a couple reminders I'm going to give those once again. First, we've officially kicked off our new teacher shout-out feature. You can stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear another great message from an educator shouting out another educator. To send out a shout-out to a teacher you'd like to recognize, simply record an audio file any way you want and email it to us. For more information, including how to record and submit, you can go to elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, and you'll see a link to the instructions on the homepage. Remember that Elevation has two L's. Also, another quick reminder that the Elevation Scholarship application period is open until May 14th. That's just about three weeks away from now. If you know uh, an English learner or a former English learner who deserves a scholarship to pursue their highest aspirations, please check out our post at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. On this episode of Highest Aspirations, how does toxic stress for students in the intersection of immigration and education manifest itself, and what are the long-term effects it can have if it's not addressed? What are the most pressing concerns that educators have about their English learners as a result of the pandemic, and what do they need to support them? How can educators, policymakers, and community organizations contribute to an environment that allows English learners and their families to thrive in an academic setting? We discuss these questions and much more with Rosario Quiroz Villarreal. Rosario is a policy entrepreneur at Next 100, focusing on increasing educational equity for immigrant students and students of color, including by removing the systemic barriers their families face when seeking opportunity. Growing up as an undocumented immigrant, Rosario understood that the sacrifices her parents made in moving to a new country were centered around securing better opportunities for the future, and that education could provide a pathway toward a choice-filled life. However, as she got older, she recognized that while education was certainly filled with opportunities, particular populations were constantly excluded. Rosario has written numerous articles centering and celebrating the lived experience of immigrants and advocating for policy solutions to challenges. Among other projects, she has worked with a diverse coalition of immigration and education advocates to draft a toolkit for K-12 educators that prepared them to support their students, families, and colleagues when the DACA decision came down from the Supreme Court. Rosario has worked on social justice issues and with youth throughout her career. She spent five years as a bilingual educator, teaching in public and charter school settings in Texas and New York. She was recognized as a champion of change by the Obama administration for her work with immigrant English learner students. As I'm sure you'll hear in our conversation, Rosario's passion for this work comes from her lived experiences, her thorough research, and the valuable time she has spent in educational settings. Rosario Quiroz Villarreal, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be here uh, and to just get a chance to speak with you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, same here. I, I should say that I learned about your work through the EL uh, Virtual Forum and through uh, a few people there and heard about a survey that you were doing that I thought was really interesting. And um, 
we had a conversation. We were just talking before we hit record. It was a while ago. It seems like it was a long time ago, at least. And I'm really excited to kind of to kind of dive in. Sure, me too. So let's not bury the lead here. One of the things that I thought was most interesting when I talked with you the first time was that you had a really unique experience of uh, joining a meeting with some of President Biden's transition team uh, back before uh, he took office. Um, and I'm sure like many would love to know what what that experience was like and what sense you got of the new administration's commitment to serving English learners. Can you give us a sense of that experience? What an incredible opportunity. Sure, yeah. So um, this transition meeting happened back at the beginning of December. Uh, Like you said, it was before President Biden took office. And it was specifically on the needs of English learners, of multilingual learners. Um, And For me, I would say I felt a bit intimidated just because I've been in this policy field as a a policy entrepreneur at Next 100 for two years. Um, But during that time, my work has heavily focused on the intersection between immigration and education. Um, And I will say that in the meeting, uh, I was surrounded by experts who have been championing the needs of multilingual learners for decades. Um, and they, they came in strong with their points around uh, how to support English learners, what's been lacking in the past, and what we need to make sure that we're doing as we move forward. I will say that um, I admire them for their persistence, right, for for putting so many years into this work of advocating for our multilingual learners. I will also say though that, you know, part of being such a, a renowned expert in the field is that sometimes that uh, removes you a bit from what's actually happening on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me in preparing for this meeting, it was absolutely necessary to tap back into the needs of educators who are currently in the classroom, who are seeing the needs during this pandemic and living in real time, the challenges. Yeah. And we're going to get into that and how you went about doing that. Um, but I, I really appreciate what you said about the folks who've been doing this for such a long time, you know, on the, on the positive side. I mean, these people have been doing this, you know, many of them or were doing this when it was English only in most places and have seen the transition through and have been able to really make some some really significant progress. Um, And at the same time, they are also the more and I know this, I was I, you know, I was in the classroom for 17 years and I've been out almost six years now. So I speak as somebody who who sees this in 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 themselves. I mean, the longer you're removed from that, the the more difficult it can be to kind of maintain your connection, which is something that you just mentioned. And in order to prepare for that meeting and to make sure that you were getting the voices of the teachers in the field, you sent out a survey, which is how I learned about your work, to learn more about um, what educators need to support English learners as a result of the pandemic. And I'd argue even just moving forward in general, I'll let you speak to that in a minute. But what, what were some key takeaways um, from respondents, and we can link to that as well uh, to the results. But curious to hear what some key takeaways were, um, and what are the main challenges that that English learners um, have been facing? Was there anything surprising there? Was it expected? What? Tell me a little bit about the findings. Sure. Yep. So, um, one of the the biggest takeaways from this was just that um, those educators who are supporting English learners are not feeling like they have been. 
provided the supports by their schools, by their districts, or by their charter networks to do right by those students. Um, so 64% of them felt that they have not been well supported. There was also this acknowledgement that um, for those students who do not believe that they're supporting their English learners well, they also feel that those students do not have a caregiver at home who can support the schoolwork. So over half of them said that few of their English learners have uh, someone who, a caregiver at home, who is regularly communicating with the school. Um, so, you know, taking these two points together of, okay, so educators are not feeling well prepared and the caregivers at home are not always able to provide those academic supports. So this is saying to me, some of the students who you would arguably say need the most academic support actually have the least amount of support and they do not have the adults who are just equipped to support them. And, you know, even more concerning, and there's been a ton of discussion about it, but it's just this idea or that, well, let me back up. We know that there is a digital divide and that mm -hmm. that digital divide is impacting uh, English learners, uh, specifically those who are coming from immigrant families who may be uh, lower income. So 72% of the educators who were surveyed said that very few or only some of their students have that reliable internet access to remain engaged in online learning. And this was, you know, after asking, okay, so do students have the devices? It was that asking, okay, well, do they have the broadband access to be getting online every day? Right. And they don't. Um, and then I will say, though, that, Steve, for me, what was most surprising was... Um, the, the question of absenteeism, and I will say that when I sent out the survey, um, there was starting to be increasing attention from the media around higher rates of absenteeism, but it wasn't uh, exactly clear who was behind those higher rates. Uh, and I wish I had asked every single educator uh, who responded to the survey to report on the attendance patterns they are witnessing with their multilingual learners because enough of them raised a concern with an open-ended responses to suggest that this is a huge issue. And I would say that this was uh, specifically a bigger concern with educators who are serving older students. Mm -hmm. um, Not surprising, yeah. Right. They brought up these concerns that Students were missing school because they had to work to help uh, their families with earnings and, and with just making ends meet, uh, or that they were missing school because they had to care for their younger siblings and support their younger siblings uh, as they needed to attend a virtual school. Um, and now that there's starting to be more data, um, like from LA Unified School District, uh, it is becoming clearer that it's multilingual learners that are among those students who have experienced the highest rates of absenteeism. And this is in comparison to lower rates of absenteeism prior to the pandemic. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, Go ahead. No, and I just want I have like just one more thing that was really surprising to me and like more on the hopeful end of things. Oh, good. Um, and I, that was really... Um, 
just how many educators said that they want more professional development on effectively supporting multilingual learners. Um, Steve, I know you were in the classroom and I can't remember how many times throughout my years in the classroom I said, oh, I want more PD. It's just not really a thing, right? But um, what that communicated to me is that educators uh, who care for multilingual learners are there and they are willing to do their part to protect the potential of these students. So what we really need is for systems to care, for those mm -hmm. school districts, for uh, those state education agencies to ensure that they are making those opportunities for professional development available to their educators. Right, right, yeah, and high quality professional development that works on teachers' schedules as well. Absolutely. Okay, so let's let's unpack a little bit of that because you just mentioned a lot of really important things and you ended with a positive, which I like. Um, and that's the idea of PD. And I just I just wanted to sort of express that I've spoken with a lot of people who talk about PD, particularly for multilingual learners, as something that's been a silver lining of this whole thing. Not only as you mentioned, do teachers kind of want this PD, which in the past they haven't really craved it, you know, and there's a lot of different reasons for that. And you mentioned some of those. Um, I didn't really crave PD because it wasn't really tailored to what I needed when I was a teacher. But now that seems to be happening. And it seems to be happening as a result of the flexibility afforded by, um, you know, remote learning and things like that. So that's that's a really interesting thing. Number one, the fact that there's a desire for that kind of PD. And number two, that it's available. But the challenges that that we're facing that or that came up in the survey of not having a caregiver at home, um, of, of uh, teachers feeling that they don't have the support that they need from their uh, districts, um, of, I think it was 72%, you said, of, of, of respondents said that their students don't have uh, good access to the internet, while devices seem to be like omnipresent, that's not super helpful if you're not able to be online, right? If the logistics aren't there, which is a larger problem, as you mentioned, like it's a problem with systems, logistics. Um, and then couple that with absenteeism and you have like a really, really difficult situation. So I guess to follow up with all that, I mean, the PD can't address all of those things. But since the survey went out, have you seen um, any improvements in any of these things in the last few months since we've talked and since the survey came out? So I really loved uh, a recent report that came out from TNTP um, titled Rising Together which basically explored um, four case studies of districts throughout the United States that are doing really unique things. And one of those things uh, being done in Hartford, Connecticut was uh, basically with, um, with the district saying, we are going to get these students back. Uh, and they partnered with local organizations um, to, to do really active recruitment or, or just like outreach to the students that they were seeing were not showing up on their rosters. Um, and they took an approach where it was specifically more uh, targeted towards uh, students experiencing homelessness, because that's another population that's been heavily impacted. Um, right. But there are things that they did that could be transferable to multilingual learners, right? And it's this idea that um, you are reaching out to students to let them know that you want them in your classroom, that you notice their absence, that their education matters to you too. Um, and in uh, Immokalee, Florida, they 
put in these um, these um, migrant resource centers where students could go in to essentially have broadband access so that they could log into their classrooms, where um, the, these centers were also equipped with people who could support with um, with some uh, some light tutoring and support of the learning happening online. So um, those are just, you know, two very quick examples. I think too, Steve, that um, as uh, the the current administration, the Biden administration, has said that their priority is to um, reopen schools within the the first hundred days, right? And as we've seen, the American Rescue Plan uh, come out and provide tons of funds for uh, for school districts. There is more conversation happening around how do we ensure that we are targeting supports in a way that they are getting to the students most in need right now. And we cannot forget about multilingual learners in that, mm-hmm. those conversations. Yeah, you know, the last thing you mentioned was targeting supports. And, and you, you're talking about that in the, in the latter part of your response to, you know, uh, um, larger organizations, right, systems in, in the Biden administration. But, but you're basically talking about that with schools as well, just with like programs like you mentioned at Hartford, targeting those students who you know are need help and, and finding ways to really um, engage them and to, and to offer some goodwill, really, for, for lack of a better term. So I think that that's something that can be applied like at all levels, you know, which I think is, uh, is an important takeaway. Um, you know, a term that we're, that we've been wrestling with a lot, and I'm sure that you've certainly heard and, and is, is this learning loss term. Um, and when I bring it up, people have different reactions to it. I think, you know, at the end of the day, uh, everybody kind of knows what it means, um, that there's going to be some sort of, um, you know, lack of progress given everything that's happened, but it's a term that is, um, it's a little controversial, I think. So mm-hmm. I'm going to use it anyway. I'd love to hear your reaction to the term itself and what you think about it. Um, to what extent did the teachers you survey um, express concern about that uh, as it applies to both language and content learning? Did they use that term? Is that a term that you're using? Uh, and is it something that they were concerned with in the survey? So I would not say that they used that term or that I uh, specified it in the survey. Um, I will say, though, that my interpretation of it, um, which is really, you know, what what are the what are the challenges that are getting in the way of students um, making the progress and, and meeting those uh, those bench lines, wh- wh- what's getting in the way of that? What is interrupting that? And I will say that considering the term in that sense, uh, it was a huge concern for educators. They recognized that language barriers made the barriers of virtual learning so much more challenging to surmount. They spoke about students lacking the opportunity for language development um, and not having the ability to practice language uh, the way that they need to and the way that they used to. They talked about students not being able to learn from peers and to look around them, to pick up on cues mm-hmm. on um, how to do certain things. Um, they also talked about this inability to 
to pool the small groups and to do the differentiated learning, um, to check in with students when they notice the, the body cues uh, suggesting that, that there was confusion, right? So um, many students are missing out on so many of those, uh, the social language skills, uh, too, from just informal conversations with their peers. Right, right. Um, and they talked about uh, students also just getting bombarded with academic language without proper support. And, you know, that goes back to the PD discussion of educators just not being equipped on knowledge around language development, knowledge around building vocabulary. Um, so I would say, too, that um, educators also understood their role in in what we're calling uh or how i'm defining learning loss yeah and i think your definition or your examples are totally spot on i mean you brought on both i think some of the informal opportunities with language are certainly missing um you know when a student i guess i guess on the bright side there if they're you know assuming that they're kind of you know in their homes with their families or their their sort of family unit they're using their own language which is a nice thing but they're not being exposed to all those sort of informal pieces and then you know you mentioned also that i think really important the idea of academic language and you said and i'd love for you to sort of expand on this if you can that students are being bombarded with academic language but student but teachers may be sort of lacking the training or maybe the tools or the strategies to to help them um overcome those challenges what was that something that you saw in the results? I mean, curious a little bit more about that. Like, how do you feel? What do you feel like teachers are missing um, or even students are missing when it comes to academic vocabulary acquisition? Yeah. So, um, you know, just to, to back up and bring it back to the survey, I would say, Steve, that there were like two strands of educators who took this survey. There were the educators who had deep knowledge and training of, of uh, the needs of uh, multilingual learners, but that was not a requirement to take the survey, right? Basically, the requirement was you currently serve English learners, whether you are uh, specifically qualified to do so or not. So that included that second strand of just the, the general educators who, who know how to teach their content, but don't necessarily get the get to build their expertise on what it means to work with uh, multilingual lear learners and what it means to develop a new language. Right. And so, by the and by the way, if the survey were designed to only work with people who were uh, experts in, in multilingual learners, that wouldn't be it wouldn't be designed the right way because you wouldn't get accurate because you are dealing with if you take a cross section of any teacher who's working with English learners, you are with people who are experts, but a lot of people who aren't no, through no fault of their own again. So sorry, I just wanted to Chime in no, there. yeah, no, I, and I appreciate you bringing that up, right? Because that brings up the point of, well, when we're talking about English learners in our school, we are talking about the most uh, rapidly growing population of students. Exactly. And we, we also need to recognize that even though some educators may not be there, it is worthwhile to invest in making sure that they do get there uh, as we're moving forward. But um, so going back to this question of language development, so... I, I was trained in all of that. Um, I, I mean, my teaching experience started in McAllen on the border, working principally with um, students with limited or intermediate English proficiency. So I understood, okay, so, you know, like students may um, 
may present as though they they understand English because they are communicating with their peers. They have that social language, but there's all of the, like underneath that. Um, there's so much more that goes into the the academic language there, and you cannot make any presumptions that students will understand uh, a word that's of a higher level simply because they know how to communicate with their peers mm -hmm. uh, in English. So when I'm talking about language development, I'm talking about uh, creating the intention in every single lesson to review those uh, that vocabulary that may be challenging for students to ensure that students are on the same page and their understanding of the terms that may be um, more advanced and that may be content specific. You have to recognize that students may be encountering a term for the first time um, specifically uh, when, when you're talking about in a different language, right? And I will say that um, for me, some of the things that um, also really helped with development was just um, grounding some of um, some of that knowledge about language development um, in in Spanish and letting students know about the root words, right, and and prefixes and how that worked in their um, in their home language in their native tongue and how that could transfer to to English. So I and I mean I think I was able to bring that in specifically as a bilingual educator too, who uh, is fluent in Spanish and Spanish is my first language. So that may be challenging for. Uh, an educator who who is not actively working in multiple languages, um, but regardless, it's it's really about just breaking away these these assumptions that educators can come into the classroom with around what students have and haven't been exposed to. Yeah, absolutely. It's assumptions, and then it's having you know the the training or the tools that you need to do it. So. A uh, little detour there, but I'm glad we went down that road. I think it's important and something that people are, are really struggling right now, uh, struggling with right now. Hi, everyone. I'm Teddy Rice, president and co-founder of Elevation. The Highest Aspirations podcast was created to keep you informed and inspired around the issues that matter most to the students you serve. We'd love the opportunity to talk with you about how we can help strengthen your EL program. Reach out to us anytime at info at elevationeducation.com to set up a time to chat. Now, back to highest aspirations. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit because last time we spoke, um, and I actually kind of wish that I recorded our conversation that we had last time because you said some, and I'm sure you'll you'll continue you'll say them now too. But you you highlighted the challenge of toxic stress. Um, which many of us are experiencing right now for sure, but particularly among English learners um, and their families. And that fits into the whole idea of um, social emotional needs, which uh, I think very happily, uh, everybody was really talking about at the beginning of this whole thing. And, and I, I haven't noticed that they've stopped talking about it. I feel like it's still being um, put in the spotlight where it belongs. But how is that um, toxic stress, as you put it, affecting the educational uh, experiences and outcomes of English learners in particular, and what can we do to, to, to mitigate those effects? Maybe start by talking a little bit about some of the observations that you've made, and then talk a little bit about sort of some of the possible solutions moving forward. 
Sure. Um, and thank you, Steve, for uh, bringing that up again and for creating a space to discuss this. I will say that um, much of what's at core of my work and that underlying thread is around toxic stress. Um, so just to get on the same page, we all experience stress, right? And short-lived stress responses uh, can actually promote growth in the body. But when we're talking about toxic stress, we are talking about um, this constant activation of the body's stress management system. And in children specifically, this can be especially dangerous when students do not have protective adult buffers. So it's this absence of someone stepping in and saying, hey, you're safe. I got you. I am here to help protect and care for you. Um, and that unrelenting stress, which you know can be caused by a host of adverse experiences that can include uh, poverty, that can include family separation or the loss of a caregiver. It includes discrimination and housing insecurity, among other um, adversities. All of that can affect the child's developing brain. And that has these long-term consequences on learning, behavior, uh, and on physical and mental health. So after the year that we have had, there is no denying that some of that adversity is the result of policy choices that disregard the needs and discrimination faced by poor families of color in this country. And here, Steve, I'm thinking specifically about New York City, where black and brown children have been disproportionately impacted by the loss of a parent um, and those are the same families that are now um, have are experiencing more poverty. Those are the children who are now closer in proximity to poverty if they weren't there before. I'm thinking about Jackson Heights in Queens, which was the center of the pandemic at one point, which is, you know, this heavily immigrant community mm -hmm. and how the, the loss that was experienced there is now not being met by the highest rates of vaccination. They have some of the lowest rates of vaccination in New York City. And then I'm also thinking about my former students. Um, so just backing up a little bit, so many of us have experienced loss in this past year. Um, I know I've experienced personal family losses, and I will also say that the most devastating moments for me came from learning that two of my former second graders, who are now in fourth grade, lost their dad. So it came from that. learning. Yeah, I mean, and, and it sucks, Steve, because, you know, when we talk specifically about uh, black and brown boys, we talk about the importance of th there or there are discussions around the importance of dads and like, like the male role models in their lives. And to have known that those two dads in particular were so heavily involved in the education of their child and those two boys now no longer have their dad is really hard. And then I also think about how the, the first principal that I worked for, and this was at a school that was 95% Latinx, it was a Title I school, he passed away unexpectedly too. Mm. So I'm thinking about 
all of these losses that uh, our, our kids are going through, I'm thinking about how these losses are predominantly impacting uh, immigrant communities. And I'm also thinking about just like, even though I, I had a parent um, who reached out uh, asking for, for any type of mental health resources that I could provide her because she was going through um, this anxiety and this stress that she didn't know what to do with. Uh, and she was experiencing it specifically as an undocumented immigrant who has received no federal support throughout this entire pandemic. And Steve, I will tell you that this mom was one of the most heavily involved parents um, in that last year that I was in the classroom. She was consistently asking for support for her child. She was consistently supporting with homework. She was consistently showing up at every single uh, volunteer opportunity that we had in the classroom because she recognized the value of education for her child. She wanted to do what was within her power to ensure that her child was set up for success. But to hear her and the challenges that she's been experiencing because of this pandemic, to hear her frustration and to hear her say, I don't know what to do, and I don't know how I'm going to get through this is really hard. So when we talk about um, just so, so what does it mean, right, to, to mitigate the impacts of toxic stress? What does it mean to support students living through that? Um, when I think about it, I can't not acknowledge that it requires providing children with the supportive and caring environment that they need to thrive. And that includes their parents. That includes removing the barriers that exist for their parents to provide for their child. It also means ensuring, specifically from the school perspective, that children have this strong village around them. That, uh, and that schools recognize what part of the village they play. That means equipping school staff to understand how trauma manifests. And it includes um, building a, a support system of care around the children who most need it. When we're talking about multilingual learners specifically, and specifically those from immigrant backgrounds, it means that educators are able to stand up for hateful too hateful and xenophobic rhetoric. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the Asian community right now, which has been going through that. And it means uplifting the strength and the power of immigrant communities. It means partnering with uh, families to ensure that they are treated as true partners and to ensure that they are also connected with the resources that they need to reach economic stability. Yeah. And the last thing you said, you know, it's again resonates with me. There's the family partnerships and the family engagement, which again has been something that has received a lot of attention that really uh, it's been needing for for a long time. And, you know, you just told a lot of um, really poignant stories and gave a lot of examples from your own life and from the lives of the students and parents that you know, which I really appreciate because I think it uh, it really makes it hit home. 
Um, and you gave sort of some examples of, uh, of what we need to do to be able to support immigrant families and students. Um, I'd love for you to, if possible, sort of expand a little bit more on what specific environments do immigrant families need to thrive and how can schools provide them? And you've, like I said, you've kind of talked about that. I wonder if you have uh, an example or kind of a template. I know it's not an easy thing to just say, it's not, it's not a one and done, you know, one size fits all model, but what are you seeing in the field now that's, that's, that's working or that has worked in the past under, um, I was going to say similar circumstances. I'm not sure there's any similar circumstances to last year, but that's worked under difficult, you know, circumstances. Sure. So um, I'm, I'm going to say a few things here, and I do just um, want to back up to that point that you made, right? That um, this idea of serving the the mental health needs of students has uh, received more attention uh, in the past year. Um, I'm, I'm glad to see it, and I know that it's been something that's been necessary and uh, has just been a need for a while. Um, now, and, do, now, and now, how do we provide... Sorry to hijack your answer, but... No, go ahead. Now it's like, all right, w- we see it everywhere, right? I mean, I would consider myself... I, I have a family. I have four kids. I, we're very privileged, right? Um, we have resources that we need. Uh, our kids are experiencing a certain level of stress and we get the help that we need without a problem at all. It's not hard, right? We get it. How do we make that so that everybody else in the communities that you just described is able to access those situations or those, those solutions through their schools or otherwise? Right. So, and I'm going to just hone in on multilingual learners, given that I know that that's what this, this podcast is about. When I think about them in this context, I recognize um, that serving them well will require a whole school school approach where everyone is informed about the impact of trauma. You know, this idea of trauma-informed practices, but we move beyond that to also engage in the work of creating healing spaces. And I think that sometimes when we're, th- when we're thinking about mental health supports, we're thinking about the individualized support that each child needs, but we also need to think about um, collective pain requires collective healing. So there really needs to be a space as students come back for them to engage in uh, in processing some of the loss that has occurred over the last year and in building back um, the, the relationships uh, that are necessary to to counter uh, toxic stress, to build that resilience, um, and and also just to engage with with each other, right? If they haven't been seeing um, their classmates, if they haven't been able to um, just play, just engage and play, there needs to be space for that. But I will also say that for students who do need those more targeted supports because they have specifically lost a parent or uh, because they have dealt with the stress of their parent as they have um, experienced economic challenges in this last year. It also means um, that schools need to be equipped with multilingual mental health practitioners and practitioners who are informed about the immigrant and refugee experiences. Um, I will say that um, what I've been seeing in the field are conversations not just around uh, diversifying the 
the educator workforce, but also about ensuring that the the mental health practitioners that we are recruiting to to address these needs are also diverse, but consistently missing from that is uh, our questions around, and what languages do these um, practitioners speak? Uh, and how are they informed about, or how have they developed specific competencies um, that are relevant for working with certain cultures? Um, I will also say that I, love the name of this podcast because it reminds me that so much of this work about uh, creating environments where immigrant families can thrive is about protecting aspirations. Mm -hmm. Um, And that includes the aspirations of immigrant students and families. Uh, Of course, that includes dismantling the barriers that stand in their way. Um, And I recently released uh, a project uh, titled Embracing Our Strengths, where immigrant parents shared their aspirations for themselves and for their children. Uh, They talked about the environments that they need uh, to to support their children. And resoundingly, Steve, uh, these parents discussed uh, that they came to this country in search of better educational opportunities for their children. That classic migrant story, there's nothing necessarily new about that, um, but it just reiterated that parents care about the education of their children, and they shared that they were trying to do everything within their power to support their children in securing a better future for themselves. But sometimes the barriers felt so insurmountable and they felt that they had nowhere to turn. So when they spoke about education, they expressed a need for language access and for language to act as a support and not a barrier. They also talked about um, wanting empathy from teachers and how they often felt that they received more empathy and more understanding from educators who were familiar with the immigrant experience and how those educators not only um, helped to dismantle the language barriers, but also helped in navigating these new systems that they weren't always familiar with. Um, And, you know, those two things make me think about the the educator workforce um, that is predominantly white, but is not serving a a student population that is, uh, uh, that it's reflective of, right? So um, yeah, I mean, again, I think about uh, how when we're talking about building educator pipelines, we have to be thinking about recruiting and building pathways uh, for education careers for multilingual immigrant educators. Right. I think too about um, how in certain states, people with uh, DACA or people with TPS are still limited uh, in being given the opportunity to teach and lead classrooms because of certification requirements. Um, and you know, I, I, w- I just want to close this one out with saying. Uh, that so much of, of what parents were talking about, I would say is, um, is connected by this thread and by this idea that when we are working with multilingual learners, when we are mo- working with um, immigrant families, 
we really need to be taking an asset-based approach. Yep. We really need to be recognizing that these students and these families come in with strengths that just need to be recognized. Yep. And we've, you know, we've talked a lot about taking an asset-based approach over the course of the last uh, few years that, that, that we've had the podcast. And uh, I think this particular episode talks a lot about the ways that we can um, approach that and the ways that we can kind of make that happen, although it wasn't necessarily a part of, uh, of the title. I'm glad that we kind of got into that because I think it's really important. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned a lot there. Well, the only other thing I'll say is, you know, to, talking about pre- trying to put together a workforce that's reflective of the students that we serve. You know, there's been a lot of, I think, attempts to do that uh, with with varying degrees of success. And hopefully, hopefully that will continue. Um, we've also spoken with a lot of folks from, from New America and other organizations about that, um, where there's some really interesting research happening, and I think really hopeful as well, which is good. Um, okay. Uh, we could go on forever, but I, I'm not going to. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap this up um, by asking you two more questions. Um, the first one's kind of a new question that I that I thought I'd try to ask people and see if we could get uh, kind of a new list. I used to ask folks about books they were reading, but I'm gonna ask you a question about um, about leaders. I'm wondering if there's a leader uh, in in this field, which can be pretty broad, um, who has inspired you over the last year. Maybe someone who you'd suggest um, emerging leaders in multilingual education seek to emulate? Sure. So I will say that uh, when I'm talking about this field, I am talking about the field at the intersection of immigration and education. And one of the OGs in this work is for sure uh, Patricia Gandara with the Civil Rights Project at UCLA. Uh, She's done a ton of work and a ton of research um, just laying out how the the political landscape around immigration has an impact on our schools, has an impact on the ways that we uh, we teach and educate multilingual learners, um, and and she has also done a ton of great work to just elevate that um, educators have a huge stake and the education system has a huge stake in what's happening around the immigration arguments because they are impacted, because they are directly working with the children who who live those consequences. So, you know, as, as there's been more uh, a, a push again for uh, the potential for pathways to citizenship for 11,000 undocumented immigrants, we need to recognize that by um, creating those opportunities and removing those barriers for uh, immigrant families, we are also supporting educators in being mm-hmm. able to do their job better. Um, right. And I do want to just bring up one additional, and this is really an organization, um, but led by three phenomenal women. The organization is M Schools, and they are taking a three-pronged approach to addressing the needs of immigrant families and ensuring that families um, and students have a supportive and safe environment at schools. And when I say three-pronged approach, they are working directly with educators, providing professional development. They are working with families to help build 
um, the, the capital to navigate these new systems. And they are working with students to ensure that students do not um, get held up in the misinformation or the myths around the what education they can uh, achieve and what their limitations are. Great. Well, thank you for mentioning uh, Patricia Gandara as well as M Schools. We will link to uh, the work of both that person and the organization as well uh, as well that you mentioned. Really appreciate that. Um, and you are someone as well who has done, obviously, based on everything we've just discussed, um, an incredible amount of important work. You mentioned a recent project that you just worked on. I'm sure people are curious to learn more about not only the survey, but the other work that you're doing. So my last question is, how can people learn more about uh, your work? Yes, absolutely. So please visit thenext100.org. Um, my work is there both under our immigration and education issue areas, and you will find a page that's dedicated just to me. Perfect. Well, uh, Rosario Quiroz Villanueva, it has been, um, I'm sorry, Villanueva. Why did I say that? Villarreal. <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> I caught myself though. I caught myself. So I think I was just speaking with someone who's, anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, what I <laughs> wanted to say was thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really insightful conversation that I think went in a lot of different directions, but um, definitely had a common thread uh, throughout, which I'm sure people um, were able to pick up on. So thank you again for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Steve. Enjoy the rest of your day. That's it for this episode of Highest Aspirations. But before we go, here's this week's teacher shout out. I really want to thank Mrs. Getze in Los Angeles uh, for being such an amazing teacher when I was in high school uh, and more so for the relationships that she built with myself and my friends. Uh, the cool thing about Mrs. Getze is that she really stayed connected far into the future after we were done with high school. Uh, just proves the authenticity behind her her spirit and the lessons from Spanish class that I've taken probably the most valuable of all my K through 12 journey. So thank you, Miss Getty. To submit your shout out, go to elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.